Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. A reading from the book of Isaiah in chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad, and the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom, and it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands and steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, and with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped? Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, and the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go out upon it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. The Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd like to keep the welcoming time going here for a minute. So uh, with apologies, I'm going to ask you to stand up again. (laughs) Don't worry, not another greeting time. (laughs) But what I'd like to do is take a quick survey of uh, our congregational makeup this morning. So what I'm going to do is to ask you to sit down after we ask about how long you've lived in the Denver area. So the natives have earned the right to sit first. If you are a Denver native, would you sit down? We're paying attention to the people around us. No, Denver. <laughs> if you have lived in the Denver area for 30 years or longer, would you sit down? If you've lived in the Denver area for 20 years or longer, would you sit down? If you've lived in the Denver area for 10 years or longer, sit down. Five years or longer. (laughs) If you've lived in the Denver area for one year or longer, Let's welcome our new PM from Denver. (laughs) Well, my my point in that was not only to show that we were trying to be a really friendly church, but also to have us, uh, again, visually note that Denver is a very transient area. People come, people go. In fact, at Waterstone, we estimate our congregation turns over by 50% every five years. 
And uh, you just see that a little bit this morning. But you know, a byproduct of being a transient community is, is loneliness, is not having family that you live near. Uh, and I don't have to tell you that loneliness has been in the headlines over this. In fact, I've started keeping a file on it. Just want to share a, a couple of quotes about loneliness in our American culture. You may read The Atlantic, and, and there was an infamous article written about a Playboy playmate named Yvette Vickers, who, uh, as a result of her fame, was daily interacting with thousands of people all over the world. And yet when she died, it was months before anyone found her. No neighbors knew her or she them. At the end of the article, Stephen March writes, we live in an accelerating contradiction. The more connected we become, the lonelier we are. We were promised a global village, but instead we inhabit the drab cul-de-sac of technology. Then uh, I'm an avid reader of David Brooks, columnist. He is the one who often keeps the statistics in front of us about how lonely our culture is. In his book, The Second Mountain, he says that 35% of Americans over 45 are chronically lonely. Only 8% of Americans report having important conversations with their neighbors. Former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote in the Harvard Business Review, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. And then Brooks makes sure that we understand just the depth of this by saying that in 1999, or since, sorry, since 1999, the U.S. suicide rate has risen by 30%. The plague hit the young hard between 2006 and 2016. Suicides rates between those between the ages of 10 and 17 rose by 70%. Approximately 45,000 Americans per year end their life by suicide. And then a great book on our culture called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. He near the end writes this. The happiness of a human being is best predicted by, let's guess, if not wealth, then health? No, not that either, but the breadth and depth of one's social connections. And then I wanted to put the last one on the screen because I'm guessing this will resonate with at least half of you who uh, haven't lived here all that long. Until recent times, it's by Kurt Vonnegut Jr., social commentator. Until recent times, human beings usually had a permanent community of relatives. They had dozens of homes to go to. So when a married, now I'm not sure I would do this even if I did have family in town. But so when a married couple had a fight, one or the other could go to a house three doors down and stay with a close relative until he, he or she was feeling tender again. Or if the kids got so fed up with their parents that they couldn't stand it, they could walk over to their uncles for a while. Now, this is rarely possible. Each family is locked into its little box. When we ponder what's happening to America, the answer is perfectly simple. We're lonesome. We don't have enough friends or relatives anymore.
Sometimes we just want to be home. Did you know that home is like the main storyline of Scripture? That's the main promise of the prophets. You know, if you are visiting with us today, first of all, welcome, and we're really glad that you're here. What you need to know is that like on any given Sunday when you show up at Waterstone, we're always preaching through like a text or a book of the Bible. Why? Two reasons. Because we believe first, it's how God speaks to us. It's how he reveals to us who he is. And the Bible, above all, is the Jesus story. And if you want to know who God is, you have to know Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, the scriptures tell us who Jesus is. But the second reason that the Bible is so vital to us is because every week, and we read it, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to come home. Home. So today, we're going to talk about home. Actually, a garden. Remember that in Genesis, we begin in a garden, and in Revelation, we, begin in a, we end in a city garden. But it's a garden. And so we're going to take a quick walk through the garden, Isaiah's botanical garden today. And then, having seen what life with God is like, we're going to talk about how God makes a way to this garden, how he'll come and take us home. And then at the end, we're going to talk about how this future knowledge of home can change our life now. Sound like a good plan? Are you ready? for garden tour, Isaiah's Botanic Gardens this morning. Here's the context before we enter into the text. Israel, God's people, are nervous, extremely nervous. They keep hearing rumors of a growing world empire by the name of Assyria that's uh, breathing down their necks, knocking on their doors, and is about to take them over and carry them off into exile. It's a really, really tense, anxious time for the people of God. And what Isaiah is saying is, look, God's people, you have two choices here. You can trust in human wisdom and human strength to hopefully bail you out of this, maybe buy you some time. You can make a a, a conference with Egypt. Maybe between you and Egypt, you can buy some time. And Isaiah is shaking his head, no, no, that's not going to work. But that's your choice, to trust in human wisdom. Isaiah in Isaiah 34 says, if you choose to trust human power and human wisdom, you will end up in the desert. Isaiah 34 is the description of a desert. It's interesting how creative Isaiah is with this poetry because much of the chapter is about owls, hyenas, and jackals. I did some research online, and because everything online is true, But those three animal species are the most solitary species in the animal kingdom. You will end up isolated. If you trust yourself, you will end up in the desert, isolated, dark, scared. You switch to Isaiah 35. If you trust God, God will come. And he's made these promises. He's made these promises about a future kingdom where God will bring in, we're going to see it in a moment, just a renewed creation and a renewed human heart. And God will bring life to the desert and he will make graves into gardens and he will have uh, just a brand new, all things new, a garden. Those are your choices. Trust yourself and it's a desert. Trust God and it's a garden. And we're going to go for the garden this morning. 
So let's take a walk through and see what life with God is like, what he promises to do at the end of time. We enter into verses 1 and 2, and we start out that God is going to, at the end of time, make creation new. The desert will bloom. I've underlined some words in the verse. It's the same word in the original language. Burst, burst, burst. God's going to make everything burst new. And uh, it's, it's these triads. Again, Isaiah, this is a poem. He's poetic. He talks about desert Parched land and wilderness, three things, are going to be replaced by Lebanon, Sharon, and Carmel. In the ancient world, Lebanon, Sharon, and Carmel were known for their soil, their gardens, and their landscaping. They were the talk of the ancient world. And so God is going to replace the desert with the garden. And he calls out a specific plant, a crocus. Many of you who grow plants know that just a couple of drops of water can make a crocus bloom. So there's nothing that can change a desert like the rain from on high. And God says, one day, the creation is going to burst with new. We go on to verses 3 and 4, not only in creation, but in the human heart, there's going to be newness. Look, at strengthen the feeble hands. This is, this is Isaiah's current condition. They're sitting with their head in their hands. They're worried about impending invasions and their world falling apart. And, and their, their knees are shaking and their hearts are racing. They just are, are overwhelmed with trouble. And then Isaiah says, be strong. Don't fear. Why? Your God will come. Your God will come. You think, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't God already here? Isn't his presence among us? Even like today, isn't God with us? He is. But understand that in this age, until that time, this age, God is invisible and his power is resistible. And obviously we know that people can disobey God. We can disobey God. People can do evil things today. But there's a time coming when God's presence will be visible and his power irresistible, and he will make all things new. He will bring vengeance. Every nation will be held accountable for the things they've done. And God's people will receive the word as recompense. It's actually used in different places in the Old Testament to talk about God's kindness. Believers, Revelation tells us, especially the martyrs, they will receive what they're due from God for a life of faithfulness, his grace, his kindness. So it changes creation and it changes the human heart. That's what life in this garden is like. And then Isaiah moves from saying it to seeing it. And in verses 5 through 7, he gives us these two amazing images. In the ancient world, if you were infirmed, if you were disabled in some way, it was viewed as a barrenness, as an empty life. And in the same way as a desert would be viewed as an empty life. But notice when God comes, what's going to happen? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, the tongues will talk. I mean, there will be human newness that comes. And we're reading this and we're thinking, wait a minute, Isaiah, yeah, he's pointing to the future. He's also pointing to someone who will come and do that. Do you know who that is? Luke chapter 7, verse 22. See if this doesn't sound familiar now. So Jesus replied to the messengers of John the Baptist who were asking, is Jesus the one? Is he the one that Isaiah promised? Jesus says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. 
Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus is doing it. You understand, right, that whenever Jesus performed a miracle while he lived among us, it was a sign of everyday life in heaven. The things we experience now are abnormal. The suffering, the loss. One day, Jesus will come and make things normal again. That's who's coming. And then to go back to the rest of uh, verses 5 through 7, the second picture is one of Isaiah's favorite images, streams in the desert. Jesus will make the desert bloom. And all of this is wrapped up with the how. How will all this happen? How will we get to this garden? Verses 8 through 10 tell us that God will make a way. It's a way of holiness. Following him is the way. And thus, anyone who's unclean will not walk in this way. What's that mean? Well, unclean would be to choose a different religion, a different God who will get you to heaven. So if you worship other gods, you won't be on this road. Or it says wicked fools on there. If you choose to trust yourself or any other way, if you turn your back on God, you won't end up on this way. But if you do end up on this way, what's ahead of you? Joy. Gladness. It began the text, it ends the text. It's the bookend. The kingdom of God is a party. It's a fall fest. It's good. And there'll be no more sighing or sorrow in the garden of God. You see, this is Israel's entire story, right? They were in bondage in Egypt, and God made a way out of the wilderness and got them out. They would be in bondage in Babylon, Isaiah's predicting, and God will come and get them out of Babylon. And even during Jesus' time, they were under the thumb of Rome being oppressed, and Jesus came. And even today, no matter what bondage, no matter what oppression around the world and in our lives, God promises a way home through Jesus Christ. It's the whole story of Israel. It's also the whole story of humanity. We were made to live with God in a garden. It talks about walking with him in the cool of the day. You know, our life should be lived at three miles an hour with God walking. But we turned our back on it. It wasn't enough for us. We thought God wasn't good or he wasn't good enough. And we turned and we left home. And we've not been back fully since. But God promises a way home. It's our story. So how is God going to get all of us home? Well, let's talk about that, how God makes a way home by talking about what home is first. I was thinking about this a lot this week. What's home? I imagine it'd be fun to have coffee and hear about your home, where you grew up, what home was like. I came to three conclusions about how I'd define home, see if they resonate with you. First of all, I think home is a, thing, is a place where everything fits. It fits you, like your design. I remember Jen and I pastored a church in Cape Cod, Massachusetts for a while, and um, there was in, in that church a tall couple. Husband and wife were both well over six feet tall. Their kids were over six feet tall. When uh, the, the husband retired from teaching at MIT, his retired life was to build an RV, and they traveled the, the, the country uh, in an RV. And uh, he gave me a tour of his RV once. It was amazing. He rebuilt everything on the inside. I walked into this RV built by tall people, and the countertop was up to my neck. 
And I had to stand on a step stool to reach the cupboards. Everything fits. It was perfect for them. I think home is also a place where you can just relax and be yourself. Jane and I have raised two sons. In the last two years, they've become homeowners in Denver. Woo! Man, no easy job there. What's interesting we found about both our boys is they keep a very tidy house. Very tidy. Like nothing out of place whenever we go over there. We're impressed. And yet, when they come home, they spend the night on Christmas Eve. They leave. Their bedrooms are trashed. <laughs> now, you know, I still want them to come to our house and have fun, so I don't get on them about it. But one time I did have to ask Ethan, Ethan, what's the, what's the deal? Why would you leave your room like this? <laughs> I'll never forget, he said, well, when I come home, I just like to relax. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you relax in your clean house. I mean, <laughs> home's a place you can just relax. Home is a place where you can rest, where, where you know, you just are able to get the sleep you need, the relaxation. You, it's just a good, you know, we go on our staff retreat, and it's an overnight and I'm always interested in the difference between the energy of staff on Tuesday and the energy of staff on Wednesday. When even though two-thirds of our staff's under 40, everyone reports they're very tired on Wednesday. Why? Because they don't sleep in their own bed. Some of them sleep really well, but a lot of them don't. A lot of us don't if we're not in our own bed. Home is a place where you can relax, where you can rest, where everything fits. And that's why when you are not home. It's hard. That feeling is hard. Our hearts go out today for any one of us who are in a hard marriage. Marriage is supposed to be a, a metaphor of home where you find comfort and joy. But if you're in a hard marriage, home is hard. Our hearts go out to anyone who is struggling with infertility, who wants to fill a home but are unable to. And our hearts are broken for you. Our hearts are broken for many of you I've talked to in the last few weeks who've become empty nesters. That's a hard turn. Our hearts are filled with compassion for you who find home hard because of violence or abuse or loneliness or neglect. And our hearts go out to many of you who wish you could buy a home in Denver. And it's so very hard to do right now. Home is hard. Now, that's a condition of the human soul, this hardness. In fact, there's a 20th century philosopher, not a believer, but uh, his name was Martin Heidegger. Heidegger said that the condition of the human heart is um eichlichen, homesickness. That the human heart is always feeling like they're exiled, that we're longing to be home, churning, stirring, yearning, but never finding true home, homesickness. And I think there's something to Heidegger in that because if you look at our literature and our culture, homesickness is everywhere, isn't it? I mean, if you read our literature in, in high school or college, you may have had to read Albert Camus. Camus describes this homelessness that the human heart experiences this way. The weight of days is dreadful. For most people, the approach of dinner, the arrival of a letter from home, or the smile from a passing girl is enough to help people get around this sense of homelessness. But the person who likes to dig into ideas and think about them, for him, life is impossible. We hear it in our music. 
Let's, let's play a little bit of music trivia this morning for all generations. I'm going to sing, you tell me who's singing. You ready? Everybody's got a hungry heart. The boss. Thank you, boomers. All right. How about this? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yeah, the theologians. All right. How about this? We'll come down a little bit. I had the help from my preaching team, the preaching team on this. I'm going to make this place your home. Philip Phillips, well done. It's in every car commercial, it seems, every insurance commercial. (laughs) And then most recently, homelessness, homesickness. What was I made for? That we didn't plan, I don't, I don't know who, that wasn't planned. Thank you. Yeah, it's in our movies. Lion King, which has now served two generations. I'll never forget watching it 20 million times with my two young sons. But there's this one scene where the lion cubs are playing, circle of life. One of the cubs says to his dad, Dad, but we eat the hyenas, or or the um, antelopes. We eat the antelopes, don't we? And the dad says, yes, but then we die and we become fertilizer in the ground. And then they eat us. And I'm thinking, holy cow. That's the best we can get right there? There's nothing better than that? Homesickness. Ava Hoffman, her parents survived the Holocaust. They immigrated to America. She describes the life of an exile this way. Since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, is there anyone who does not in some way feel like an exile? We all feel ejected from our first homes and landscapes, from our first romance, from our authentic self, an ideal sense of belonging, of attuning with others and ourselves, completely eludes us. Why? Why? Well, God's answer for humanity would be this, Psalm 90. O Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. The reason that humanity does not feel like home is because we've rejected our home. What we do is we try to find home in everything else. Even good things, like our own families, and like our careers, and like our money, and like our pursuit of sex, and like all these other things, we try to settle our hearts, our racing hearts. And God says, I want to be your home, and I can settle your heart. Well, how's he going to do it? The Old Testament pages of Isaiah are rustling with hope and promise because they're saying that one will come who will bring the garden and take us there. He will bring us home. Who is that? It's Jesus. And what did Jesus do? In a sentence, he became homeless to bring us home. Christmas, Merry Christmas, Jesus is coming. Two months. The thing is, I think we miss the meaning of Christmas year after year. We do. I mean, we, we start, we sanitize it. We say, oh, oh yeah, away in a manger. 
No crying he makes. His head on the, I don't know the words were away in the manger, but something about head on a straw. <laughs> and we think, oh, sweet smelling straw and sweet fluffy huggable animals. And it's like, really? You'd want to have birth in a barn? In the muck and mire, in the urine and the manure? Scandal over a 14-year-old girl. How did you get pregnant? Rejection, closed doors, darkness of night, yelling, screaming, pain of childbirth. Everything like that was designed to break our hearts. Because the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, had to become homeless to be home with us. And it didn't stop after he was born. He went on the road, parents fleeing for their life because Herod heard about him. And they lived in Egypt when he was a toddler. And then during his ministry, Jesus oftentimes would say things like this, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man, as Rich Mullins put it. He was homeless all the way to the cross. And on the cross, do you remember what he cried out near the end? Do you remember? My God, my God, this hurts. Would you make it stop? No. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, Jesus experienced Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. When the priest, in behalf of all the people, having confessed sins for a full day, would go in and lay hands on a goat, a scapegoat, and place all the sins of the people on that goat, and then send that goat outside the community to perish in the wilderness, to take our sins away. Jesus died outside the gates. He was born outside the door and died outside the gates to carry our penalty for our sins. The second person of the Trinity left his first family to die. Jesus became homeless so that we can go home. How do we respond to that? How does that change our lives? How does this promise of home now that we have, that Isaiah gives us this morning, it's an invitation. It's a garden invitation for us to come home. Jesus makes a way. He became homeless to do it. How do we respond? How does the future now invade our present? At least in two ways. First, we who follow Jesus, knowing that he became homeless to bring us home, we now carry the life of home in us. If I could put it this way, I don't think this is unique to the Denver area, but you all are familiar with the Parade of Homes? We are the Parade of Homes. With all our relationships, all our encounters, we are a sense to people of what it's like to live with God. That's our calling. We are to show the life of God to others, what it's like to be home. The best description of it I've ever read comes from 150 AD, and this would be a prayer for Waterstone, that we would show people home like this. It comes from Lucian of 
uh, Samosata, who uh, was not a Christian. He was actually a Greek satirist, syrotist. He like made fun of people. (laughs) As you'll see, he said this about us. The activity of these people in dealing with any matter that affects their community is something extraordinary. They spare no trouble, no expense. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on trust with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. We live to show what home is like. And we're motivated by the knowledge that Jesus, in his love, became homeless for us so that we could do this. It's not only for the inside, for one another, the brothers and sisters, but it's also for people on the outside, everyone we encounter. This past week, since last weekend, has just been a horrible week as we read about the events that have happened in Israel. Many of you know this, but I want to be reminded that the word Hamas, which describes this terrorist group, is actually a Hebrew word for violence, which tells us what this terrorist group was all about. They hated the Jews, and they will commit violence to see them rid from the earth. We condemn in the strongest terms Hamas and what they've done in Israel. Now, as I was reading this week about that, uh, I came across a story uh, that describes home. There's in Israel a part of a museum that's called the Righteous of the Nations. And there they honor people who helped save lives during the Holocaust. And the only American soldier in the Righteous of the Nations is named Roddy Edmonds. His story is this. He got captured and was sent to a uh, prison camp in Germany. And one particular afternoon, the Nazi commander of the prison camp said to Roddy Edmonds, who had, he was a master sergeant, highest non-commissioned officer there, and he, he was the prisoner leader of all the prisoners. And he said to Roddy, tomorrow morning, I just want the Jews to show up for the morning call, just the Jews. And every GI knew what that meant. And so when the Nazi commander came out the next morning, He saw the Jews standing there along with every American soldier and everyone else in the camp, over a thousand strong. And the Nazi commander said to Roddy Edmonds, I said, just the Jews. And Roddy Edmonds said, all that the Geneva Convention requires, we say, is our name, rank, and serial number, which meant that we don't have to tell you our nationalities. And they all stood there. Well, the Nazi commander pulled his sidearm and pointed it right at Roddy Edmonds and said, I said, just the Jews. And Roddy Edmonds said, we are all Jews. 
That's home. That's showing Roddy Edmonds is a believer. Story told by his son, a pastor. That's home. Today, with all that's going on in Israel, we are all Jews. We also mourn and lament and pray for the over 1.5 million Palestinians, innocent civilians, who are being displaced. And we stand with them and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray, to quote Bono, that Israel does not become a monster to defeat a monster. We are all Jews. We are all Palestinians. And we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So we're called to be the parade of homes. Lastly, we're also called to come home. It's an invitation. You know, many of guests in the room this morning, you're probably wrestling with a lot of this and thinking this through and think, well, I don't, I don't know. Well, let me just say, the one like most true thing I can ever say to you, the most sure thing, sorry, but you're going to die. You're dying. What's next? You walked into the room this morning with a story, holding a story. The story may even be that there is no life after death. When we die, we're fertilizers and the antelope eats us. Whatever it is, what's your evidence? You're leaning a lot on that story. Is there any particular reason why you wouldn't believe in the over 500 people who witnessed firsthand Jesus after he'd walked out of his grave? Do you have any specific reason why you wouldn't accept that? Because if you follow Jesus, his promise is this. I went into the grave. I became homeless. I walked out again to call you home. I have punched a hole in the pitiless walls of death and now turn to you and say, follow me. You can come home. The good news today is that God loves us without condition, without restriction. He loves us. The bad news is sometimes we have such a hard time believing it. We want to be lovable ourselves and find our own way. And God says this morning, Come to the garden. Lay the desert down. I can turn graves into gardens. Will you follow me there? You know, I end every funeral that I do with this quote from C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself a yearning which no earthly experience can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Come home. Come home today. Let's pray. Lord, for anyone in the room who might want to come home right now in this moment, I just want to give maybe some ideas and words and a prayer of how we can come home. And it would go something like this, Lord Jesus, I believe 
that you are the son of God who left your home in, in glory in heaven to enter our home to the point that you would lay down your life to take on our sins and die so that God could forgive us, so that he could destroy evil without destroying us. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that he rose from the dead so that I could live forever with him. Jesus, today I'm just telling you, I believe, and I want to come home. This morning, if you've prayed that prayer, we're just going to have an opportunity to respond. Or if there's anything in your life that you feel you want to lay down before God, a situation, a mistake, a failure, or even good things, like, Lord, I just want to tell you how much I love you. I acknowledge that you became homeless for me so that I could come home. Anything you want to do, we're going to sing a couple of songs. And uh, you have the freedom to stand, sit. We're going to declare the front here an altar. If you want to, like, before God, in an act of courage, come down here and just give him something, you're free to do that. If you want prayer, we'll be watching some staff. Elders will pray with you. Anything you want to give to the Lord right now, you come as we sing.